0: and welcome to episode 94 of Talking Dirty. Over at East Ruston Old Vicarage in baby blue, we have Alan, <laughs> Edward, Herbert Gray, our happy and very handsome horticulturalist.
1: And the shining light in Cambridgeshire. The sun is not shining here this morning. and I don't think it probably is with you. Middle of the country. We've got a little bit of cloud this morning. We have Thordis Maria Sophia Fredrickson looking absolutely blooming.
0: <laughs> and joining us back We haven't caught up with him since episode 31, can you believe it? The one and only, no-dig guru, Charles Dowding, who I think I was so excited to meet last time, I didn't ask for your middle name, which is something we always do on this podcast. Do you have any middle names, Charles?
2: Yeah, two. Uh, William John.
0: Solid. Charles William John Dowding.
2: (laughs) Hello, everyone.
0: The reason you're back with us is because you have another book out, a very, the kind of book that's really going to stand out on the shelves. You've picked a very good colour for the cover It's very cool. It is absolutely packed with information and I am genuinely really excited about it. I've been delving into as many sections as I can, but I can't wait to sit down and have a chance to actually read it cover to cover. Uh, Tell us, I mean, everyone knows all about you and can go and listen to episode 31 to kind of get your background, but tell us how exactly the book came about.
2: Uh, Well, it's through Chris Young, actually. He um, I'm sure you've come across him at different times. He was editor of the Garden magazine. yeah. And so I've known him for quite a while. I've done some articles for him for the RHS. And he then had this idea. He, he'd seen that I hadn't worked with a big publisher for a while, if ever. And he thought, wow, Dolan Kindersley, because he's working for them, could do something really good. And the initial proposal was the book working title was Charles Dowding's Vegetable Growing Masterclass. So it wasn't specifically no-dig, but it was going to feature no-dig in a big big time, because that is the basis of it all. And we worked all last year getting all that down on a computer. I was going to say on paper. (laughs) And then um, we got it. There's a lot of information about growing all the different kinds of vegetables. That's two-thirds of the book is that. That's the second part, if you like. Uh, But the first part starts with no-dig, and then they decided to change the title seeing how much interest suddenly it's really taking off now in no dig and it makes a very simple title that stands out very nicely Um, but within that or beyond that there is a huge amount about growing vegetables as well so it's it's a bit like my life's work so far in one book which i haven't really done before
0: that is what it feels like. It does feel like your life's work on paper, about a hundred pages explaining all of these principles that you've dedicated your life to discovering and lots of research, explaining exactly what's going on in the soil, how to set up your no-dig garden, et cetera. And then just like, was it, nearly 200 pages of yeah. all of the different things you can grow and your favorite varieties and all these bits of key information about um, when to um... sow and how to space.
2: Thought is it could easily have been a thousand pages, <laughs> 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 um, because that's where it's been great working with with DK, because they, you know, they're so good at um, graphics and all these kinds of things. So we, there's, there's a huge amount of information distilled into those pages. And also, I was working last year with Jonathan Buckley, the photographer, who I'm sure you've come across. And yeah, he's brilliant, and it was a real pleasure to work with him. He came down here for thirteen whole days last um, spring, summer, and autumn. And so we've got those amazing photographs and what I haven't had before, I have never worked with a professional photographer when I'm writing my book. So I've had the chance to be photographed doing things. And there's there's a lot of my hands, for example, actually <laughs> showing the reader, you know, how that works.
0: Were you a bit self-conscious about the photo shoots? Because I know you've done a lot of video and photos over the years. So are you used to it now or do you get a bit sort of butterflies?
2: To be honest, I'm totally used to it. I just get <laughs> on with things. And as soon as we stop clicking and I'm doing something else, you know, it's just like yeah, part of the day.
0: Yeah, my, t- <laughs> so my time shot. That shine. works well actually
2: because I think it looks quite natural. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and the garden always looks nice there as well. And I never have to sort of get it ready. You know, they just turn up and film a working day almost. You could say doing a few special things.
0: And I mean, Alan, you'll you'll know from the photographers coming to East Ruston how lovely it is to sort of see your plot through someone else's eyes. Well, yes, it is. Um, um, they also put a new slant on it, I thought,
1: well, there was a slightly different slant on it, I think. But I, I was very, very taken with what Charles just said. It's just like another working day, but we're doing a few special things. And I think that says it all because that means that you have, you know, you have you declare yourself as an honest gardener. I mean, you don't rush around getting things ready, putting props up, and all the rest <laughs> of it. You know, you take me as you find me, which I think is absolutely brilliant. <laughs>
2: Well, it, it's one of the lovely things, actually, Alan, with, with no dig, because it's easier to have a weed-free garden, for example. You know, occasionally people might come along here and say, oh, you've been busy weeding, uh, get it all looking nice for the open day, or whatever it might be. Actually, no, that's how it always is. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah <laughs> straightforward. That's what I want to share. That's what I want to share with the reader. Uh, actually, how gardening can be simpler than it's often made out to be. And uh, there's a lot about um, not exactly cutting corners, but doing away with unnecessary... Uh, rules if you like like i very seldom harden off seedlings i don't do a four-year rotation i water in bright sunlight you know when necessary so all those kinds of things just to make life easier i think
1: it's absolutely brilliant i have a rather bad infestation of chickweed in my one of my one of the beds in my vegetable plot and i was looking at it the other day and we just planted out it was about a month ago maybe five weeks six weeks we just planted out oriental vegetables right and I suddenly thought these vegetables are going to be spoiled by the fact that, you know, because chickweed are minute little seedlings, and they yeah. there's so many of them, and you can never really weed them out properly. And I'm thinking, I'm going to be talking to a man who knows better than this, so I, I think I'm going to be thinking about you using your no-dig method because it just seems so sensible.
2: Well, yeah, you're absolutely right. As soon as you say chickweed, that's what I think, because there's a saying around here in the farming world, Chickweed follows the rotivator. And it yeah. I know from experience where I've used a farm rotivator in, in my twenties, that yeah, you rotate a field, you get it all looking nice, and then within three weeks it's a carpet of green. Absolutely happened to me in 1987. I sowed um an acre of carrots. I got them sowed by a contractor after rotivating the ground. Because there was a shortage of organic carrots, and I was just experimenting. I was no digging in my main garden, I just thought, I'll try this. We could surely grow an acre of carrots. And he drilled the carrots in um, early April, and then it was a damp spring, and after there was so much chickweed. I can totally relate to what you're saying. Yeah. But I don't see it in the in no dig. You know, it because it is a weed of disturbed soil. So that's what it's saying to you, Alan. You you go no dig. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I did wonder whether you have some other means of communication, and you were telling me that I
2: need to go no dig. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's night and day.
0: He's communicating <laughs> via chickweed. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah I mean, I was speaking about like, we that acre of carrots, I'd never harvested one carrot, so that, you know, for me, that was a really strong lesson. Yeah, um, you don't need many of them.
0: <laughs> Do you know what I think I found? Uh, there was a, a bit in the book which is talking, you have these wonderful uh, sections, these delve deeper sections, um, where which actually handily are a different colour, so that as you're flicking through, you can actually say, right, here's one of those bits that's got vital information in that I need to get to grips with. And there's this bit all about the universe under our feet, which was one of those sort of flashes of understanding and inspiration, talking all about the soil food web. I know people mm. need to go and read the book, but can you talk a bit about this soil food web?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And that's not my phrase. It's it's quite a well-known um, way of looking at soil. It comes from uh, Professor Elaine Ingham, who is in Oregon University in the US. And she's worked for a long time. She's a soil microbiologist. She must be um, 70 years old now, but her whole life has been about looking at this. And she's built up a huge understanding about this matrix of life which we're always walking on but not seeing it's it's usually working on our behalf (laughs) helping plants to grow and just understanding it better and and one of the big things the big takeaways from her work is is no dick basically you know leave it alone and um there are ways to stimulate it and encourage it and it leads you into looking at soil in a biological way rather than chemistry has tended to always be the center stage and people talk about feeding plants and you know this is more about feeding soil life if you feed soil life and look after it and leave it alone that soil food web just goes strong and healthy and and huge and, and it generally works with plant roots to help them find nutrients and moisture and that's one reason actually why with no dig you do get better moisture um you know, they, they put up with a shortage of water better. And we've seen that this summer. A lot of feedback I've had from no-dig gardeners in the in the dry, hot summer, you know, about not that they don't ever need to water, but their plants are, are putting up with it much better they've gone no-dig.
0: Yeah, there was this sentence about organic mulches add organisms to the soil food web. The idea of you're not actually necessarily feeding the plants directly, you're feeding this... Yeah food web in the soil, which then helps all of those symbiotic relationships that are going on between the mycorrhizal fungi and the roots. I mean, it did blow my mind a little bit. It felt like it was tapping into something I'd sort of started to understand, having spent years gardening, but it had never clicked in quite that way.
2: Oh, well, I'm really happy to hear that. That's great feedback. Thanks. You could put that in a review on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> well, funnily
0: enough, I did go and read uh, some reviews on Amazon, considering the book is literally only just out when we're recording oh, yeah. this. And one person had said, I've got loads of books on compost and loads of books on, uh, you know, keeping your veg patch, books by you. This They felt like this was the only book they needed because <laughs> it, oh, nice. it okay. actually had I'm all the...
2: All the stuff in, yeah. That going back to your your point, there is is really interesting one. And how, for all our amazing knowledge about you know looking after plants, and and you know this applies to ornamentals as much as um, food vegetables. I don't think there is a huge amount of understanding ex- about how exactly roots get hold of what they need, and the fertilizer aspect of it has taken over rather, and it's been presented as though the root is like a, a mouth, you know, and it, it can just open and swallow that MPK you put on. um, And and yet, it turns out from from what people like Elaine Ingham are are, are discovering and looking in microscope, um, you know, really study what's going on there. And and it's really complicated, actually, but in a nice way. You know, we don't have to know because they do it, but all the bacteria that are involved and the the different disassociation by micro, the mycorrhizal fungi, uh, it, it turns out they can take nitrogen off cell walls. I only learned this last night in a video link someone sent me. And, and use that and then they the cells rebuild their walls you know just incredible things like that all going on that we didn't know until recently
0: i'm just loving watching alan's face <laughs> <laughs> well i mean it, I, I was
1: i think i was you could say i'm gawping in wonder I think. <laughs> that's, that's a no, good description
2: <laughs> yeah i mean well look for example you know i here I'm, I'm not i don't reckon i'm using a huge amount of compost people say they'll say to me like oh i couldn't do no dig because i can't get enough compost but actually if you don't disturb your soil you're it's very carbon retentive you know this is a great message now because you're not losing carbon to um co2 it's not being oxidized it's all staying down there and therefore you actually need less compost in the end to grow the same amount weight of food and i'm finding this with my two trial birds here so i put on the same amount of compost and the one that i dig every december gives about 10% less food every year and so actually for no dig you need 10% less compost you could argue to get the same amount of food it's a really efficient way to grow.
1: Charles if you're starting from scratch can I just Mm. ask a question for instance my chickweed ridden plot or bed if I'm starting from scratch how much material do I need to put on at the very beginning the first lot the first layer?
2: Well I'm pretty sure that you being a the good gardener you are your soil will be in good heart you know you've been adding organic matter over the years so it's yeah. not like you need to build a lot of fertility there and chickweed is quite an innocent weed actually it's really easy to mulch you know it's not like couch grass or bindweed no so uh, if i were you you might i mean i don't know how, what you're going to do right now because you want to get your oriental harvest mustard harvest whatever but uh, it, cardboard is is the easiest way and you you could use as little as one inch of compost on top of that because it's just enough to hold the cardboard down chickweed will die under cardboard it, it'll keep light off it for long enough before the cardboard yeah. itself decomposes so it's a temporary light excluding barrier for weeds and then you, you you've got a lovely surface and the only weeds you'll then have will be whatever seeds were in your compost so it's, you know that's something else to consider but they're yeah. not it's not compost is much easier to pull weeds from or into hoe than, than soil it's not sticky you know it's soft and crumbly so it makes a nice, nice surface that stays there it's never dug in whatever you know so, yeah.
1: can you start off i mean for somebody that doesn't have compost could they start off with um spent mushroom compost perhaps or something oh, like yeah, that
2: totally god i'm glad you asked that yeah because well <laughs> my definition of compost compost is anything decomposed so um you know and it doesn't need to be perfect especially if you put it on um like late autumn coming up time now And it sits there over winter and it it often, well, it always goes softer and the lumps break up in a bit of frost and that kind of thing. So you end up with a beautiful friable surface, even if it's, it could be old animal manure, Yeah, it could be mushroom compost, green waste compost you can buy. It could be leaf mold. Uh, it could even be old wood chip, you know, if you go to the bottom of a pile of really old wood chip, it's often yeah. you know, basically compost. So, yeah, the, it's a very broad category of possibilities.
1: Yeah, well, that's, that's interesting to know because I think that will help an awful lot of people. I yeah. mean, because there's so many doubts, I, I think, when, when you're explaining something not new. I was going to say something new. It's not new, no, um, sure. but it's a different philosophy on how we actually, how we manage our soil. And I think what, one of the most interesting things, I mean, you talk about, feeding uh, nitrogen off the cell walls, and the cell walls then grow, regrow nitrogen. Well, that's just one thing that happens underneath the soil. There must be many, many others that we would never understand or never know about, perhaps. But, you know, this mysterious world that's going on underneath there, it seems sacrilege to me to even put a spade into the ground now, <laughs> listening, to, listening <laughs> to what you say. Oh, that's um, nice.
2: I, I, that's it, I think. Once you realise, it, it does feel wrong, actually. And It's one thing I love when I'm teaching that, you know explaining about no dig and and the, the comment i'd love to hear the most is someone saying oh this makes sense <laughs> yeah because i know them you know that they've, yeah. yeah they've understood it and, and what, well, i am. Yeah. I do understand the
1: value of mulch because i mean we're great in this garden for mulching um you know late right. winter early spring stick a layer of mulch on because that will stop the weeds germinating yeah. i'd never thought of doing it in the vegetable garden it's ridiculous isn't it i mean <laughs> Steve. Interesting. Um, and also, I just suddenly thought we re- we could recycle all those cardboard boxes that stuff arrives in today. <laughs> yes, yeah, right. Because you know people don't go out to buy things quite so much. They buy on the internet. Mm. Inevitably, it, it arrives in packaging, and you wonder what the heck you're going to do with all of this stuff. Well,
2: you know, there you are. There's a use for it. It's a one-off, though. It's just to be clear on that one. That you don't need to do the cardboarding every year. Yeah. so once you've once you've covered your thick weed <laughs> and then don't yeah. disturb your soil in your case, it, it won't come back. you know there might be the old one or two that you need to pull. but yeah. it's it's going towards in a very weed free situation and that's another interesting aspect of no dig. And you know I've, I've come to see the soil as a living organism in its own right. It kind of has a consciousness almost. and it's when it's disturbed, um, it, it grows weeds as a recovery process, which yeah. also makes sense. Even with those words, you know weeds cover the soil or they recover. And so that—that's the beauty of it. You leave it at life. You don't get many weeds after.
0: Yeah, yeah. and we should talk about um, because obviously there are things like chickweed which are relatively easy to deal with. Okay. There are much, much more pernicious determined, <laughs> deep-rooted weeds. And I love the fact that you've been doing this for such a long time and paying attention crucially for such a long time that in the book you talk about how long it takes to weaken some of those more determined weeds, which I suppose really we have to bow down to their desire to live. And um it is years actually of sort of keeping, yeah. you know, taking that top growth away and stopping them photosynthesizing in some instances.
2: Yeah, we we've had a good example of that actually in the last two years because I took on this piece of ground in march february march 2021 and oh boy that the near part of it is is so full of bindweed Um, that's field bindweed which it comes back so fast doesn't it and then you think how am i ever going to get rid of this but so we do the initial mulching that i've been mentioning with the cardboard and we put on more compost actually we put on three inches in this case and that also does lift the soil fertility it was just pasture field and within about uh, two months of beautiful bindweed free gardening and then suddenly the cardboard Disintegrates, (laughs) Disintegrates, <laughs> and you see all these shoots appearing, and, and that's when we just do it with a trowel. When I say just; it is a lot of time actually. It's time; it's a commitment. I look on it as an investment in the future because we've now, eighteen months later, that bindweed is really weak. You know, I'm, I've i done this before, so I, I kind of knew this would happen. But even so, it's really gratifying to see that, and this plot is becoming very clear. Bindweed, and not quite totally, and, and whenever we see it now, it's very doable because it. It's weak and it's sporadic. It's here and there. Um, we can oh, will get to the point where there's pretty well none, actually. And again, that's the beauty of no dig, doing it this way. Because if I try to dig out those bindweed roots, they that's disturbing the soil. So what in actual fact do you do, Charles, when when the bindweed reappears? Yeah, we do disturb the soil a bit. <laughs> yeah. So I, what I got is this um, nice, long, thin copper trowel. Uh, I like the copper. It's an investment. It costs about £45. If you're using a lot, if you're a professional gardener or doing a lot of gardening work, I would say that's a really worthwhile um, thing to have because it slides in really easily, doesn't disturb the soil too much, and you can then, you go in almost vertically near where you see the bindweed shoot appearing and give a little lever, you'll hear this gratifying scrunch (laughs) as the (laughs) deeper (laughs) root breaks and you can ease it out, sometimes lifting the trowel a little bit. And so we're getting out quite a bit. We never get the main parent root or hardly ever, uh, but we get out enough to weaken it quite quickly so we're doing that's how we do it it's not just pulling it yeah Although, interestingly in that respect i had a guy on a course here once who we were talking about marestail which is even more difficult and he said oh, i got rid of marestail once by hoeing as like, everyone looked up in amazement you know that. and he said but it took 11 years <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: so yes, if you if you have mares tail, it's going to be a long endeavour.
2: It's longer, um. <laughs> yeah. But but actually, something else with no dig is that no dig definitely improves drainage, and I've had this feedback a lot from people with really wet allotments and swampy ground. And it's a, it's about allowing again the soil life to sort it out, you know, worm channels and, and everything like that. And also because you're not breaking the soil's natural uh, capillary structure, water can flow more easily both down and up. Obviously, if you have a site that floods, you, you, it'll flood. You can't alter that. But for, just for wet soil after heavy rain, no dig really helps. And that's where marestail thrives, you know, in, in those boggy conditions. So you're you're making it less likely for it to be there. And that's where weeds and pests, actually, you know, they're really interesting because they're hints, they're indications about, you know, things we can do to help things.
0: Now, um, I mentioned that in your... 200 odd or pages, however many it is, of your kind of key varieties in the vegetable and herb directory. That's a very good title for it. You no. have lots and lots of favorite varieties with taste notes and, you know, tips on whether it harvests a bit later than the other variety you've mentioned is wonderful. Um, obviously a big part of this podcast is show and tell and it's a rare treat we are pretty much obsessed with ornamentals most of the time few of our guests jack wallington did bring along quite a few edibles that he uses in the ornamental garden which i think i definitely want to try a bit more but yeah you you are you're going to be our, our food guru charles for all the people who follow this podcast and never get many tips on uh, on edibles i'm afraid there's quite a lot of responsibility. Fortunately, <laughs> you've got uh, years and years of expertise to deal with that. So I think we should commence some show and tell. I Hope can't you- wait
1: to see that fabulous head of green celery. I mean, <laughs> yeah, how, I just, 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 how delicious is that? You've and, got uh, like
0: a whole crate of stuff to show us behind you. So, yeah, um, kick off show and tell. What have you brought first? <laughs> it's
2: um, Well, it was the biggest one of about 50. <laughs> <laughs> celery, though, it must have had more water than the other plants because it's this is what makes it difficult, just getting enough water to it all the time. And yeah. in the, the summer we've had, this has been one of our biggest jobs has been watering and especially the celery. But what, it's taken me years to find out, um, to find a variety that really grows this well, because this, this this is a bit of a story actually about the seed trade and how um, seed producers are tended to concentrate on hybrids, F1 hybrids, because they make more money for them, I think, and give a more reliable result. And the older, open pollinated heirloom seeds as they're called have been neglected and they're not the first they were you know like if you grow evesham special brussels sprout for example well it's not special anymore and i've heard a lot of seeds people say this so you know that to get an f1 hybrid celery which is what this is it's called victoria uh bred by Tozers, actually who I, I take my hat off to they're very very good seed breeders in sorry based in sorry and since i've been growing victoria i've had more results like this so yeah, it, I'd recommend it, actually. And you can get it in small packets from people like King's and, and Mr. Fothergill's. Quite a few seed companies sell it. It's, it's recognised, I would say, as the, the best celery to grow now at the moment.
0: It's a good point. You You have a, a section on your book dedicated to this idea of sourcing seeds. And, you know, yeah. unfortunately, we are losing some of that with the heirloom varieties
2: well absolutely and it's so important because <clears throat> you know i've had this experience myself you 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 get you give all all the love and attention to your soil you get it all ready you do the sowing you do the planting you get a rubbish result you know and you've done nothing wrong uh, and i've been experiencing this with beetroot actually recently um boltardi is my very much my favorite variety and I, you know i've been growing it for 40 years so I've, I've been doing that for long enough to have seen the change in this the seed of the same name it's, it's the same name on the packet why shouldn't it be the same but it's not and and it's been allowed to lapse and apparently there's two things going on that the seed companies are not paying enough money to the whoever grows the seed for them in the big fields um they should be going through roguing in the winter to pull out the less attractive um roots the roots of pale color the ones deformed the ones growing loads of leaf and no root that kind of thing but they haven't been so that we're getting more of that now in our seed packets and Possibly they were growing some boltardi for seed too close to some fields of ruby chard, so there's a bit of that pollen got in as well. You know all sorts of things like this. Whereas if you grow F one varieties, you don't get that happening, but you have to pay more for your seed, and also with F ones you can't keep the seed. So with the boltardi, I did I did that last year. I kept some seed. Oh, I should have brought my big one in actually. <laughs> oh, no, I've still got a bit in the kitchen. I'll, I'll get it in a sec. Basically, I, I grew it and 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 selected. My ten best roots, put them in the ground, grew, grew the flowers, got the seed, and I had no idea. I'd never done it before, how it would work. And this is what
0: <laughs> I feel. like here's one I prepared earlier. Moment coming on.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I can't wait to see
1: this. My goodness, this is this is like this is like the best kind of flower show, isn't it?
2: <laughs> Whoa! Yeah, we've taken we've taken some out of the middle actually because on on this is three kilogram beetroot. On my open day, people were saying to me isn't that woody because it's so big? Yes, I was immediately thinking that. Right, and so I, I thought, okay, well, let's see. So i, I got a knife and sliced off slivers for everyone to taste. And it's juicy and tender, and they were saying things like, oh, this is like carpaccio, and <laughs> <So>, um, <laughs> But yeah, it's just a beautiful beetroot. So, you know, that's something else, for your listeners, you know, to take away. Don't worry if your beetroots get big. It, you know, if your soil is good, I think, it could, especially with no-dig healthy soil, um, just enjoy them and they'll store really well so this if i hadn't cut it and we're eating it now you could store this through the winter and, and still be eating it like in march next year so this is well, making yeah. me think charles because you, you talked about f1 seeds mm. um f1
1: hybrid seeds and we all know that you don't get so many seeds in a packet and they are more expensive yeah. but if you're getting results like that we don't need masses and masses of vegetables we need yeah. fewer vegetables um a superb quality.
2: I can show you another nice example of that. Look at this tomato. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean so that, that, that's peachy. That's reminding <laughs> me of beautiful. something. <laughs>
2: also, look at the gorgeous colour there. It's it's got a rainbow um bit. I'm gonna cut it for you actually, and then you can see that in the middle. Uh but it's called um sunheart, or it goes under lots of names and, and it's one of, it's gener- generically their ox type, so they have a slight point to to them. And you should be able to pick these up. They're getting more common now. They're beautiful flavor, as well as being very productive. So And that's open pollinated, so I can keep seed from this one. And if I cut this open now, you'll see this amazing pattern inside the... Oh, gosh, look at that. Wow. It's, it's almost, it is like a heart, you know, you can imagine yeah. that sort of veins. <laughs>
0: yeah, It's kind of, yeah, that veiny marbly type effect through the middle. Yeah. Wow. and then
2: you can see it's a lot of flesh there's not much seed or water in there it's, it's, so it's very juicy tender and sweet actually so it's a win-win these um you know i'd urge really anyone to try Gen- generally ox heart types um are, are really good um yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know there's so much to find out about all this sort of thing it's amazing and then look at this as well pick these this morning
0: <laughs> ooh, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> these are some pretty fantastic aubergines
2: i'd never grown such long ones and it's partly the variety and partly the summer we've had it's called de tannes a french name and it, again it's open pollinated um, i got the seeds actually from bingenheim uh, seed company in germany who sadly it's now difficult for because of brexit to get their seeds but they do send them to the seed cooperative in lincolnshire so that's worth looking at them <clears throat> and i don't know this one doesn't i grew it last year it wasn't so long but you know really productive and delicious they obviously liked our sunny spell this 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 summer oh uh, yeah i mean there's although you know it's been dry it's been fantastic hasn't it the sunshine
1: well, the, the sun makes everything so much more flavorful i mean i think the tomatoes the outside tomatoes this year have been the more delicious than they they have for a long time because we've had this okay. very high temperatures and lovely clear skies
2: I so agree. We're noticing it in carrots as well. Actually, though. are yeah. sweeter than usual. Mm. Yeah.
0: Well, it's interesting. There's a bit, and and lots of people who grow veg will know this, but I have only grown a little bit of veg in my life. I can claim mm. no expertise at all on that front, or many fronts, to be honest. Um, but you talk <laughs> a bit about, um, you know, how lack of water can improve flavour and and yield. Actually, absolutely.
2: Yeah, and I mean, here's an example of that. Um, this is a sweet pepper called Flynn F L Y these are called snack peppers and they are just sweet. You can eat them, there's very few seeds and they all, they're, all the seeds are clustered near the top. So you can just chomp, chomp, chomp until you get right to the end. And yeah, they, they're something that I don't you don't want to overwater too much. Um, I'm just in the process actually doing some BRICS tests, which is where you, you can get a portable refractometer and measure the sugar content. And brewers do this like for cider and beer just to see how much alcohol they're gonna have at the end of the process. And I was doing something last night and comparing, believe it or not, um, kale, you know, there is sugar in kale leaves. It was actually um, five, five percent. Celery, four percent. It's surprising, leaves. Um, And then a sun-gold tomato, which is famously sweet, that's ten. And then I did a beetroot and that was also ten. So, you know, that's kind of strange, isn't it, you think? Yeah, it is. uh, But it's because I think the beetroot's got so much earthy flavour it's like that sort of gets in the way of the sweetness if you like yeah yeah and then um the two that really stood out i tested an apple a ribston pippin and that was um 18. one of the highest readings i've seen from an apple and i think that's related to what you were saying alan the dry weather yeah and then i got a gorgeous plum called um co's golden drop and that was 22 and a half which is again such a high reading i'm just going to show you that one actually <laughs> it's not much to look at because it's splitting a bit <laughs> <laughs> as we a of the rain. And uh, these, these are like sugar bonds. It's quite remarkable. And it's it's a nice variety of plant because it matures later than, say, Victoria. Uh, and o- over quite a long period, so you can just go to the tree and pull off a few ripe ones every so often.
0: <laughs> oh.
1: I think it's really interesting that you show, you've shown the Coast Golden Drop um, looking, um, shall we say, in its uh, raw state. <laughs> because... <laughs> I mean, a lot of people would, people that don't know, younger than I am, that have been brought up with the fact that plums come in plastic bags, you know, they yeah. probably don't realise that you can eat those plums, you don't have to eat the bad bit if you don't want to.
2: Yeah, that's um, such I, a I good point. Brought,
1: I was brought up before the age of supermarkets, and vegetables looked like vegetables, and they looked exactly. lumps and bumps, warts
2: and all, you know, yeah. um, but they were all edible. Yeah, totally. I, I couldn't agree more. and uh, the it's something that one just has to get people used to i suppose but i find it when i'm selling cucumbers like that this is one of my favorite varieties that's it is an f1 hybrid though and because i cannot find a non-hybrid cucumber that people will buy um if they want a long cucumber that is and even this one do you see it's got a slight curve on the end yeah well oh, that's pushing it a bit <laughs> in, in terms so, of all right you know, charles
1: they all have one way or the other <laughs>
2: <laughs> well yeah if it's on a shelf you know uh it's it's just got to look perfect well that's that's the understanding you know that so yeah it's hard to get past that and even you know there's a brandy wine tomato for example which again a bit like you were saying Alan, oh, it's it's not the perfect tomato that bit of sort of splitting
1: i don't know i think a lot of people would be pretty pleased to have that on their plate <laughs> <laughs> i should hope so
2: yeah i mean that's i need to right
0: now <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah the, the brandy ones actually i really recommend them you know so, so much flavor that's the red one and then the yellow ones um, tend to be a bit rounder so you know nice choices and they, they're not usually that enormous they're pretty big but, but always good flavor yeah open pollinated so you can keep the seeds
0: I think um when I did grow a bit of veg when I'd first started getting into gardening um and I not you know no nothing disparaging about my family but I I we'd never grown any food and I think I had been from my you know my generation indoctrinated into the perfect veg and i think growing your own food is the ultimate route into eating stuff that is a bit wonky or marked because obviously you put all this effort in you're going to eat it unless it's completely (laughs) ruined you are determined to to get your food at the end of it so yeah it helps you realize it doesn't have to look perfect
2: yeah it's like i was saying about compost as well you know i think many people are used to buying compost in sacks from the garden center it always looks perfect very nice and when you start using your own compost it's not like that but don't worry you know actually what's in there is more important than your own compost will have lots of microbial life and that's what's important which you can't really buy
0: well there's another interesting thing with compost isn't it? a friend of ours richard hobbs i remember him saying on the the radio once when we were working together the um If you were to ask people, you know, normal people who don't garden, if you were to give them different compost to look at some sort of very black, fine soil with nothing in it, they'd be like, that's the one I want. That's the best compost. But actually, you know, ask a really top gardener and they're probably going to go for something completely opposite.
2: Yeah, it could be uh, because that's what one of Elaine Ingham's points. You know, if it's too black, it's probably got too hot. And the good compost is actually more brown than black so the black color nice as it looks um, it shows it's had bacterial decomposition at very high temperature which it will be good in the end once it's in your garden but the microbial life has been knocked out of it by the heat so it needs to sit on the ground on the surface and then all the microbes come up from below and colonize it and it becomes really good actually in the end but at the point at which you buy it it's somewhat dead.
1: <laughs> I naturally have a feeling that the darker it is the less I want it. Oh, that's a good one then. That's yeah, I, I really just feel that. I mean, I, I don't, I've i always felt that, and without any reason, you know, without any knowledge or anything, that yeah. that's too dark. I don't want that. I want the stuff yeah. that's sort of brown and crumbly, and yeah. I don't even I, mind if it's got a bit of smell to
2: it. either, <laughs> Because, that, you know, it's got to be good. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, that's instinctive. I just wanted to show you this melon, too. Um, This is um, a seed a friend gave me, actually. It's called an ogan and... What yeah, that's what I can't convey, I'm afraid, on the screen or yeah. the podcast, the, the gorgeous aroma. And that's the best way of knowing if a melon's right. But this variety, I warmly recommend any type of ogen, that's O-G-E-N, because it's resistant to mildew. I've grown it alongside other varieties, and they've succumbed to mildew. It's been a bad summer for mildew, uh, I think, quite generally. Dry uh, leaves, this one it? hasn't. So if, you, if you've if got leaves with still without mildew at this time of year, it means they're sweeter. You know they can photosynthesize and put the sugars into the fruit. So.
1: Now a lot of people, a lot of people are wary of growing melons outside. Did you grow that outside? Ah,
2: in the polytunnel. Yeah, thanks ah. for putting that
1: uh, out. No, no, no. I was just going to say because um, you know a lot of people think that you can't grow melons outside because our uh, summers are not really long enough.
2: Well, can you in Norfolk? I mean, here in Somerset, it's we struggle actually.
1: Yeah, we well, we've got the lowest rainfall in the country here. It's supposed to be twenty yeah. inches a year, um, and I think that possibly Charles, there's going to be a time when we can ease fairly easily grow them outside, um, yeah. because our summers are getting longer. When I mean, we don't have frosts, and we'd hardly ever get a frost here until after Christmas anyway. Wow. Um, so the autumns are longer. Um, yeah. I don't know whether that will help or not, but but in the polytunnel, I'm glad you said that. Yeah.
2: Yeah, very much. I mean, the same with these aubergines. I I would not be expecting to do that outside. No, no. But I've got one more thing I want to show you this gorgeous radicchio. Yeah. These are one of my favorites for autumn, and I love them uh, for their flavor. Uh, They're bittersweet. Yeah. And the bitter flavors have been quite ignored in in the UK, and they're valuable for our health. You know, really good for the liver, apparently. Uh, but you've got the sweetness because it blanched in, in the heart. And this variety is something that's taken me a long time to find. I grew radicules for 35 years without doing this. And then recently I came across this. This has been bred in Italy, I think quite recently. And so basically you, you've got a strong chance when you put in your plant in the ground that you're going to get something like that. Whereas a lot of the older um, varieties just don't do it. They Some will make a nice heart and a lot never do for whatever reason. They yeah. haven't been bred tightly enough. So that's the name of that one is five zero six TT, <laughs> not a very romantic name. Um, and there's another one called two zero six TT, which gives you a Treviso type head, and that means it's it's long and thin with big fat white ribs, and really pretty as well. And that just, that can grow without blanching. These just grow outside. You and that's another nice thing about them. They're a second half of the year planting, so I sow these in early July. And I have plants ready that can go in after things like onions. You know what? What do you put in after your onions? Otherwise, it's getting toward you know after midsummer. And this is That's a very great- that's well, why we grow Oriental vegetables, you see. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, totally. And you can also put in bulb fennel and, and quite a, quite a few other things actually at this time. But this, this is one of my main ones, and endives as well. You know, chicory and endive, really yeah, good. I
1: think I think that looks absolutely stunning. Um despite yeah. the fact it's five oh six TT,
2: we'll forgive it. Now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll make a note. Um, get some seeds early July next year. Yeah.
0: And it's worth saying for anyone who's watching this for the first time, all the episodes come with full plant lists in the show notes. So whether you're listening or watching, you can just look down in the uh, notes below to see all of the varieties that Charles is, is mentioning, because I think we all want to grow them. Even those of us who don't grow edibles. I'm so, I wish I had more space. I'm so oh. desperate to try all these things.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: so, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, this idea of combining edibles and ornamentals, I think for, mm. for the many Many fold of us who have small gardens is something we need to try and I, and I imagine because you've been so dedicated to growing food to sell and you know to eat yourself it's not necessarily something you've done much of but are you seeing people trying to mix the edibles in with their their ornamental gardens a bit
2: yeah and i've tried it myself and i would just you know give give a caveat to that because <laughs> when when you've got an, an established ornamental bed and particularly if you do things like chop and chop and drop, and you've got quite a lot of undecomposed mulch on the surface, there'll be quite a few slugs there. That doesn't matter if you're growing roses and, and shrubs and that kind of thing, um, but for vegetables, it does need to be slug-free. And if you're not careful, you can waste quite a bit of time, uh, you know, losing plants. <laughs> which, which is why I've actually moved away from it a bit. I mean, I, I acknowledge that if it's the only space you've got, it's worth a try, but make sure it's plants that are not too slug sensitive and that you know that can even include tomatoes actually you know if you're putting them in quite big but but then also they need full sun if possible you know to do something worthwhile so there's all those different criteria and vegetables are i would say are more difficult than ornamental plants because they're very demanding they're not really natural plants they're plants that have been bred over quite a long period to do things that we like (laughs) so yeah don't be too ambitious try a few things see what works
0: that's very solid advice because we always want to set ourselves up for a success. So yeah, totally. I'll bear slugs in mind. They certainly like my garden. So.
1: <laughs> oh. <laughs> I, don't, I know, I think that's absolutely true. I was thinking a little while ago when, we, when you just started to talk about radicchio, that um, it reminds me of the days when, when, you, when you actually picked a lettuce and you had to wash the slugs out of it. I mean, because we did, as children, we did. (laughs) And then you stick the leaves in a tea towel, throw them over your head like a mad thing to get the water out. And then, of course, you let go of one end, the lettuce leaves go all over.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but that's exactly it. Back in the 80s, when before salad bags were invented, I, I grew a lot of lettuce and I was selling it to shops and wholesale. And I could never sell to restaurants because there was always a slug or two in there. Yeah. And chefs just got time to be faffing around with that. So um, <laughs> then when salad bags happen, we break up the leaves and mix them in water, and the slugs fall to the bottom. I hope most of them, anyway. <laughs> so the, the lettuce I sell now is, is slug free. And um, yeah, that's made a huge difference. Yeah.
0: And actually, Slugs are are not the veg gardener's friend. They're not really any gardener's friend. Part of the natural balance, I'm sure, but still not something any of us want to see. And I think when people are making a veg plot, they do often make these sort of wooden raised beds. Uh, Which, When we did episode 31 and we talked about this, you you explained, and it's probably worth reiterating for people who haven't seen it, that that is often creating all these wonderful little nooks and crannies for these things to live in.
2: (laughs) Oh, I'm afraid so, yeah. In the first two years or so you'll be all right because the the wood's still new and there's not much so much habitat. But as that wood starts to decay a bit, that's you get these cavities of rotting wood. Perfect hiding place for slugs in a sunny day, and then as soon as it's dusk, out they come. <laughs> have a have a, a meal. So yeah, you you know, this this is where again going back to that original thing I was saying with no dig, you know, and people say I I, I couldn't do it because I can't afford the compost, but a lot of people spend a lot of money on wood. And if you cut that expense out of it, you know, spend it on compost instead. That's your long-term investment that's going to really give you benefit for many years to come, you know, a, a slightly larger dose initially. And then going forward, so we're putting on about an inch a year, um, yeah. to 2.5 centimetres. That, that's enough. And we're getting two crops a year. Because again, that's the thing, that compost is not like fertiliser. So it, it doesn't wash away, the nutrients don't wash away. So you put it on once and you've got long-term
1: So if you put yourself a small compost bin and you compost all the tops of the vegetables that you're going to use in your house and anything that will
2: actually rot down and make that compost, you become full circle, don't you? It's beautiful. Yeah, that's a good point, because actually one thing I wanted to mention is we compost weeds. We compost, the bindweed roots I was saying about, they go on the compost heap. We compost everything (laughs) and it all disappears. And I'm totally confident in saying that, you know, I know from long experience, because I know that often people are told that you shouldn't put bindweed roots or whatever on the compost heap. I assure you, you can. Uh, Even if it's not hot, I've done that as well over winter. And you can put blighted material as well on the compost heap that blight spores cannot survive in soil and compost they need living plant tissue to survive We're talking about
1: potato and tomato blight specifically yeah, really. they, uh, yeah.
2: well i'm mentioning that because i know people worry about it a lot and, and i just again know from experience and also look if you look at the literature it's very clear about this point so i don't know why um you know you sometimes well you hear this so much that you can't yeah do that, but you can and you know there's a lot of myths <laughs> don't believe everything you hear and, you know, try try things out as well. Don't be afraid to try a few things. I have to say, I
1: tell you're such a guru at this. I mean, it's just, just marvelous. The pearls of wisdom are coming out. It's wonderful.
2: <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> That's nice. Yeah, I'd really, really like to get the record straight because I, I get so many questions. You know, people have got so puzzled because they, they hear conflicting information from different Yeah, people. exactly. What, yeah. what is actually the truth here? And, and I'm not claiming I know all the, all the truth, but I've got enough experience that I feel I'm I can pretty much put them on the right road, at least, you know. And yeah, then, and then, every garden's different. And that's a very beautiful thing about it. And so there'll always be different details. But if you get the that understanding, that's what you need. Yeah.
0: Well, and the understanding obviously comes from experience as well. And that's why we feel like we can we can trust the person who doesn't just say it based on one year of doing it, but on. Yeah many decades of doing it not to you know focus on that too much Charles um, <laughs> one of the things that I also thought was a, a great takeaway was you wood chip your paths I think you'll have quite hmm. narrowish paths and they're wood chip yep
2: so my, my favorite layout would be um, four foot beds from 1.2 meters and 16 inch 40 centimeter pathways and because you haven't got wooden sides you can have quite narrow pathways because the, the sides aren't getting anyway. And you can push a wheelbarrow up a, even a 12-inch, 30-centimetre path, You know, and it doesn't matter if the wheelbarrow legs sit on the bed while you are spreading your compost or whatever, because that's the beautiful thing also about no dig. You can walk on your beds. It doesn't compact because you haven't broken the structure in any kind of cultivation. So with the um, these narrow pathways, we put on just a thin layer of wood chip. We put, before winter, all of the soil is covered for the year with a little bit of wood chip on the path, at the same depth as compost, about an inch. And that feeds the... The fungal life more and also retains um, moisture in, and improves the soil of the pathway because the pathway is living soil you know that that's an important point i think people worry that they because they're walking on it all the time that you know it's just dead soil it's just a path <laughs> uh, but actually path is part of your garden it's, it's, and, and we, we've seen it this summer where vegetables on the edge of beds close to the pathways grow bigger than the ones in the middle of the beds because they if you get a shower they can their roots can nip out it's called opportunistic routing, quite horizontal routes and pick up that mushroom. So yeah, look after your past. Never thought of that, you see.
0: Exactly. <laughs> revelation after revelation. Yeah. yeah. yeah well,
2: it's all in the book.
0: <laughs> but I yes.
1: think I think the idea of four foot beds is is absolutely wonderful because it means that you don't have to walk on your beds to weed them you can you know get if you yeah. if you need to weed them get your kneeling mat out and just reach to the middle and you can do that from either side so that's a very good yeah. tip I think
2: but um, you can also you can put your foot in the middle we, we do you know if we some if it's I don't know it's something more difficult to pull out when we're harvesting garlic yeah and that's quite tenacious roots. <laughs> And so we'll we'll often be putting a foot in the middle of the bed. But I'm just saying this to reassure people that you know it's not like. Do a,
1: you do you actually just pull your garlic up?
2: Well, it depends. Actually, um, I like to, if possible. Sometimes it doesn't come out without snapping the stalk, so we'll use a trowel, just slip yep. it underneath to yep. cut the roots of it. Yeah, and then I will though, because we've then loosened the ground quite a bit to get the garlic out. We'll walk on the bed just to push it down again. I yep. want my bed surface to be firm. I don't want it to be. All loose and fluffy, which would make it lose moisture. And roots need firm soil to to move in and yeah. anchor yeah. plants. And you know this is a bit of a lie, really, being sold to us by the people who make rotivators and things. You know, they you don't need that loose, fluffy soil. You want it firm. <laughs>
0: Well, you know, I feel like we could talk to you for hours about all of this, but I know you've got places to be, and we haven't done FLOMO yet. If you've never watched this podcast before, this is basically an excuse to get more plants into the chat. Uh, <laughs> FLOMO is the way Alan and I live our lives, going around, having a fear of missing out about flowers and plants that we desperately want to grow with no real space to grow veg. I am now really drowning in edible related flow. I'll be honest. And actually, I already was in that. Um, I was going back through some photos of when I'd visited Chatsworth. Must have been last year. And obviously, their cutting garden is is fabulous. And I saw an amaranthus I'd meant to grow called Red Army, which was huge. It was over a meter. Beautiful, <laughs> lovely, dark reddish purple color, and these fabulous, you know, plumes on the top. And you know, technically when I grow <laughs> here comes Alan, is that Red Army? Yes,
2: you <laughs> got
1: That that is a piece of red army that was a, that was a self-sown plant in my vegetable garden this year. Um and it's huge, it's it's as big as a person, and this is just a side branch from it. Wow. Um absolutely fantastic thing. I just couldn't bear to pull it up because it 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 had chosen to be there, and I thought, well, you
2: may live, you may live. <laughs> But it will, it'll leave a legacy, won't it, of millions yeah. of seeds. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely.
0: <laughs> I think we want millions. I'll have some. Uh, it, it, I mean, I'm unlikely to eat it, but there we go. There's an edible that I can put in my ornamental garden and it will look beautiful. I grew several shorter uh, amaranthus this year and they are absolutely beautiful. I kind of had them planted up in mixed pots and that wonderful, the ready. You know, the red varieties, that lovely ready leaf was such a foil for all of the flowers that were around them. So that's that's my Flomo, a sort of edible, you know, to to fit in with the vibe of this podcast. Uh, Charles, where are you at with your Flomo? Is there anything you particularly want to try?
2: I would like to find a red sunflower, actually. And um, I don't know if such a thing exists, but, you know, one with really red petals. And I, I did grow one this year and they turned that orange, <laughs> kind <of> rusty orange, <laughs> which is still very striking. Um, but in terms of edibles i'd love to find a, a more rust-free garlic Um i might be asking the impossible there because rust on garlic leaves has become a significant problem over the last few years and many yeah. people say this not everyone and i don't really understand how it spreads you know the the climatic conditions vary um i've had it in dry springs i've had it in wet springs and, and so on uh, so yeah that's that's probably my main ambition and also i'd la- love to find a non-hybrid a great greenhouse cucumber with a smooth skin and nice long one.
0: Well, if you've got any ideas, comment below. We'll make sure Charles gets the information.
1: <laughs> I think what's very interesting is that, that that these things that Charles is wishing for could be lurking. I mean, they could be lurking, not necessarily in this country. It could be anywhere in, in Europe, if you like, or, or even further afield. But, you know, where people have particularly not been scientifically breeding their plants, Um, and they've had varieties which they don't even know what they are anymore, but they go down from one generation to the next to the next, Mm. and so so forth, they could well be out there. That's a really good point, Alan, and this could be the trigger. (laughs) We'll find it.
0: That's fine.
1: Many years ago, I was an antique dealer, and I used to say, look, it doesn't matter how popular a piece of furniture is, because... There's somebody out there that will love it. All you've got to do is find them. Oh, and it's the see. same with the seeds, Charles. All you've got to do is find them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs>
0: so, Alan, where are you at with your flamo this week? Well, my flamo has to be.
1: I mean, I'm going to pinch it from Charles because I mean I just love the radicchio there. That, that I oh, I mean, just loved it, and I'm I do. Um, think there's a very good Italian seed company. I think they're quite good anyway. Um, I can't remember what they're called. Can you, Charles? Branchi, ah, it?
2: well, I have to be careful what branchi. I say here. But I wonder if you're thinking of Seeds of Italy. Uh, that's branchi. one, Seeds of yeah. Italy. I think well, the other I, one. because I've been disappointed with their, um, you know, I don't think they're breeding as tightly as, as they could right. be. I really don't. I've grown so many of their. So-called chicories, and and they make lovely plants, but they don't really fold in tight like that.
1: Yeah,
2: and it's where did you get the special seed seed company? Well, uh, from Bingenheim, actually, in Germany, who source it from Italy from quite a small seed company. But it will be available through the seed cooperative in Lincolnshire, so that's where you want to go. (laughs)
0: He's writing it down. He's making. I am because
1: I mean, well, you know, this is I've never heard of it. Cool. Okay, because
0: also
2: the, there's a lot of confusion with radicchio, and I don't think they make it clear enough on seeds of Italy seed packets whether they'll put pictures like this up. And it turns out that that happens when you plant, uh, force them. Yeah. So you grow, you know, Teresa particularly, you, you grow the roots through the summer and autumn, and then you dig them up and force them over winter, and that's when. Well, that's get...
1: what we used. That's what we used to do. We used exactly. to sell, sell the stairs in a in a flower pot. Right. um you know and they'd be blanching in the dark and all the rest of it but i mean yeah it's a lovely thing <laughs> they, to do in the winter it's it? a very even temperature which is cool yeah. very cool <laughs>
2: yeah. Yeah. but it worked yeah it does but it's a lot of work and it's actually a yeah. lot easier to do this and they just grow <laughs> <So>. Yeah,
1: exactly <laughs> and that, that looks fantastic so wow. i'm going to yeah. i'm going to explore those i'm going to explore the cert seed cooperative in Lincolnshire. i must say and thank you very much for that very valuable tip
2: mm, Good. Um, well done. They have twenty hectares, twenty hectares of greenhouse. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah.
0: um before we let you go, Charles, you've actually got a no dig day coming up. Oh, day. thanks
2: for mentioning that. Yeah, it's we we've decided to really celebrate it. Third November, we've created it, we've registered it. It's no dig day. And, um, <laughs> People from all over the world can can get together virtually um, online, put up a picture of a new bed you're making, or have a no dig lunch with your friends. Or <laughs> we're running comp- competition actually, the caption competition on my website, and also for children, um, you could enter any kind of photo or, um, or of something you've made, um, even a model, but to do with no dig. So yeah, we're, we're really going to celebrate it.
0: And, oh, uh, Alan, you, you need to sort out your bed so that you can enter <laughs> in the no dig day. <laughs>
2: Yeah, it's a good trigger. We made it in November, incidentally, because that's a great time to, you know, just, it's the autumn can be the start of the gardening year. You get your ground ready for the following spring. It's a good time to put compost on or to make a new bed. And so, yeah, it's, it's a very apt time.
0: Do you know, if it's possible, I've enjoyed this even more than episode 31, which I didn't think was possible. Uh, This has just been such a lovely way to spend an hour. Thank (laughs) you very much for coming along with all these fabulous edibles. I cannot wait for when I get this mythical next garden where I have the space for a veg patch.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Great. Well, I wish you success and thank you very much.
0: (laughs) And thank you for the book. Everyone needs to go and get it. No Dig, it does have a a subtitle, doesn't it? It sort of looks like it's No Dig, but you open it and then it's got a little subtitle.
2: Oh, yeah, I can't remember it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, I wrote it down. Nurture your soil to grow better veg with less effort. Now, there's a right. motto for life.
2: Thank you, Thordis.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Have a lovely day, everybody, and happy gardening.
1: All the best. Lovely to talk to you, Charles. All the best. And you, all. Yeah,
0: bye bye. Hey, Thordis here. Just to say thank you so much for listening to Talking Dirty. You are now officially our favourite person. If you really liked it, please do subscribe because we'll be back for more plant-loving mayhem next week. And as you're our new favourite person, we don't want you to miss out. If you've got a question for Alan and the experts, you can email it to hello at getgardeningnow.co.uk. So happy gardening and we'll see you, oh favourite person, next time.